Welcome back to another episode of FunViews Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Pop. Today's guest is Zeb Portanova. Zeb grew up in Arizona and attended Cornell, University of Florida, Harvard, and Duke. He first took a position in the public office side of things before jumping into real estate development. He eventually made a move into pharmaceuticals through a firm that his family had helped build many decades ago named Eli Lilly. Zeb went on to become CEO of several large multinationals before finally starting his own investment funds in various opportunity zone verticals. Zeb has always donated his time and money to causes he believes in, and today is no different. He has built several investment verticals, including hydroponic farming, solar installations, and cryptocurrency mining. Zeb and his partners are extremely excited, but also looking forward to a long overdue vacation down the line. Zeb, thank you for joining FunViews podcast. I appreciate you taking the time to talk about your background and and how you got interested in in finance investing and and all of the pieces along the way. Um, Thanks for for having me. Uh, Glad to be here. Yeah. So, so I guess to, to start maybe for the listeners, tell, tell me a little bit about your background, where you grew up, um, you know, specifically in early days of, of, uh, Zeb's life, and then we'll move, move forward from there. Oh my goodness. A lot to unpack there. Um, I'll, I'll try to keep it simple. So I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona. I was technically born in Connecticut, moved to Phoenix when I was three years old. And, uh, and it's kind of funny, my, my family, uh, being outside New York City, assumed that that what everybody does is they move an hour outside of the city. So we moved in 1983, an hour outside of Phoenix, Arizona, which is a little town called Carefree in Cave Creek. And when I say it was a cowboy town, I mean, we moved to the desert. And and today, Cave Creek and Carefree are totally built out. And there's houses between uh, between there all the way into Phoenix. I mean, the whole area has been built. But when we moved out there, it was an it was an hour of desert between where we lived and Phoenix proper, um, which was actually really funny. So uh, I, I uh, always have a fond passion uh, and memory for, for living out in the desert. But yeah, grew up in Phoenix, graduated high school in Phoenix. And then, um, yeah, my family, uh, dad and both my sisters still live out that way. That's interesting. The, uh, the small town, I, I grew up in a small town, like 22,000 people or something. And I remember when I was a kid, our only movie theater uh, burned down. And for the next like 10 years, we had to drive an hour to the closest big city, Ottawa or Kingston, um, just to see a movie. <laughs> so we didn't even have a movie theater. We had we had a grocery store, uh, a handful of other restaurants. Um, uh, I mean, it, we were. We would snakes would come into our backyard um, scorpions would fall in our pool. And you gotta remember my family moved there from, you know, basically suburbs of New York city, Connecticut. And we're out there and we're like, where are we? Like there are scorpions that, I mean, nobody can see my hands. They're like six inch scorpions would fall into the pool and drown and die, but you'd see them at the bottom. And we were like, we are so fish out of water out here, but yeah, we didn't have any of that stuff. We had to drive 45 minutes like you, if you wanted to go see a movie, that's what we did. Yeah. Interesting. So, so yeah. from there, um, eventually you went to, uh, grew up through high school. Did, did you stay there through high school or did you move away? No, I, I stayed in, uh, in Phoenix. We eventually moved closer, uh, into the city in the city proper, just because we were, uh, I went to a private school called Phoenix country day school and the commute from, um, from carefree was just too long. It was an hour each way. And, uh, both my sister and I, and, and my older sister, Clarissa, um, all went to this, this one school. So we moved into the city, uh, lived there and then, uh, actually got accepted. I applied. I was always, it's kind of interesting. I was a 
subpar student. I'd say average to mediocre at best through my Mm -hmm. beginning of my sophomore year. And then something clicked in me where I actually started realizing that it felt good to do well in school. And and I was never the smartest, but I I all of a sudden, I started feeling um, a sense of enjoyment about working hard and getting better grades. I mean, I was getting okay grades before like Bs, but all of a sudden getting B pluses and A minuses uh, on the second semester of my sophomore year in high school, like something clicked and it. Actually, a lot of it had to do with one of, uh, one of my biggest influences at the time was a history professor named Dave Martin. And, um, and I wanted to do well in his class, partly because I wanted his esteem, right. Mm-hmm. And recognition for it. And then at that point, things clicked and, and I went from being like an average student to being, I'd say, you know, top 75% in my class um, in yep. this small private school. And, and from there, it was like, wow, I can actually, I might have a chance of getting into a really good college. We had some family connections back to Cornell and, um, and I ended up applying early admission uh, and got in and I, and, and I never should have. I mean, I, maybe I, w- I wouldn't say never. Uh, I just... I was probably on the edge and the fact that I mm-hmm. had increasingly better grades year, you know, quarter after quarter, semester after semester. And the fact that I was um, captain of the soccer team for two years and uh, I was into a bunch of hobbies that I was actually pretty, pretty good at. So I think they took a chance on me and uh, hopefully didn't regret it. I didn't stay there all four years, but uh, that's how I got into uh, an Ivy League school and, you know, essentially changed my trajectory almost entirely. Yeah, that's it's interesting that you know, the grades part of things, right. Where like people looking at it, they care if it gets better and better. And that was me, but in college, not in high school, I had, you know, terrible grades the first couple of years. And then I, and then I found something I was more interested in. And, and, you know, I had a couple of great professors at the time too, that, um, that kind of pushed me along and, and motivated me. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's interesting how that, that clicks right and like it really does take just you know a, a moment in time and then your mindset changes and mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're 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 interested and you want to learn yeah and and i and i did and it felt good to learn and um yeah i was actually started to become proud of the fact that i was working hard at those things uh which yeah it was new to me yeah yeah so so from cornell why did you um not stay for all four years you, you moved to university of florida yeah, yeah. Um, as when I moved, all my friends uh, called me an Ivy League dropout, which which certainly I was. <laughs> that was that was their uh, uh, you know term of endearment for me for basically leaving an Ivy League school to go to University of Florida, which my mom thought was going to be the biggest party school. She so l- let me back up and explain the decision as to how I got to that point and why I made that choice. Uh, so got into Cornell, um, had a, a bunch of great friends, joined a great fraternity. Found myself in Ithaca, New York, which if had Cornell probably been in like New York City, mm-hmm. um, I would have had more to do. But instead, I found myself sitting in a library, studying all the time, uh, doing well, you know, getting like, you know, again, B pluses, A minuses. Uh, there were some super smart kids, of course, throughout the school. And, and I was doing pretty well, but I was studying all the time and it was freezing cold outside. And I was, uh, you know, I had a passion for wakeboarding, which is like, kind of like surfing behind a boat, you know, so you're a Florida yep. guy, you, you know, you, you get lakes down there. And, and I was doing that. Um, I wouldn't say like, I, I, yeah, every spring break, every summer, I mean, if I had free time, I would either go to Florida or in the summertime, I'd go to Michigan. 
and I wanted to wakeboard. So my heart was doing that and I couldn't do it. And my sister, who was at uh, IU, Indiana University, was getting straight A's. She was Phi Beta Kappa and she didn't do, I mean, she was working hard, but she was also having a great time. And she was like, Mm -hmm. had this really good work-life fun balance going on. And mine was like all library studies. And so finally I was like, you know, life's too short. Uh, I made the decision. I had a bunch of friends down in Florida and I was going to move to the University of Florida to be able to one, be closer to wakeboarding two have a little bit more balance in my life. Um, and, and three, be able to do something that I, I really loved, which at the time was uh, being able to wakeboard. And so yeah. uh, I had to call my mom and tell her I wanted to do this. And she was like, uh, I, I jokingly say she was going to disown me, you know, for leaving an Ivy League school to go to UF. And in hindsight, it was the one of the best decisions I ever made. Um, I got straight A's when I got to Florida. Uh, I had all this extra free time on my hands because mm-hmm. schooling came easier for me at that point. And so I started volunteering at the, at the children's hospital to raise money for, for Shan's children's hospital on campus. And, um, so, and I was able to wakeboard and it was just, it was awesome. So I got, you know, foot in public service. Cause I was passionate about that. Um, you know, got straight A's and, and was able to do the sport that I loved and, you know, it all, it all worked out pretty well. So, yeah. Good. And, you know, it's an, Interesting. You know, I was kind of look back at what I what I did. I I looked at uh, and I didn't actually go, but I got accepted to Waterloo uh, in Canada for computer science. And that, that's what I started when I first started at Carleton University, which Carleton's like a mid tier, kind of like a UF uh, of Canada. OK, um, whereas Waterloo is like this high, you know, almost the Ivy League of Canada and when Waterloo, when I went to visit the campus, it just didn't give me a good feeling. It wasn't like a like warm, fuzzy, like this is going to be my, my school spirit, my college. It was more like, so this is where I'm going to study, huh? It looks like everywhere else. It's just a bunch of brick walls. <laughs> yeah. And so, it, you know, that, that was the decision that, you know, when I was looking at schools, that had nothing to do with the pedigree. It was like, you know, what's the feeling I get from this? Well, sure. And, you know, as, as a college student, right. Or, or, or looking to be a college student, like you're so young, like you don't yeah. know, First of all, you don't know what you don't know. And then yep. secondly, um, you know, you're thinking, well, I, at least for me, I didn't even know what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't even know what classes I wanted to take. I was just there because that was kind of the expectation and I was supposed to do a liberal arts background. And so funny story, um, coming from Cornell with great grades, uh, University of Florida denied my application the first time. <laughs> really? I was what? like, you've got to be kidding me, guys. And Did I, they give you a reason? Well, yes. So, so I called them up and I was like, hey, they didn't give me a reason. I had to call and ask. And they said, yeah. well, you don't, you've not taken a biology class because it's funny how these, you know, these universities, yeah. if you're going to transfer in, which I was doing technically on my two-year degree, if you will, from Cornell, the classes I took at Cornell were required for Cornell, not required for UF. And UF said, if you want to come in, you're missing a biology class. Well, I'd taken biological psychology. I was technically a psych major. And they're like, well, that's not going to qualify. I said, what if I sent you the book? I said, I'm learning about everything about biology, dopamine, neurons. Like, like literally, this is a biology book. If I send it to you and you review it, would that work? So in the middle of my final exams, I had to send down my biological psychology book to the UF admissions group. And they finally, I mean, I, I pestered them, Greg. Yeah. I, I think there was even a note in my um, in my admissions file saying, 
you know, this guy is, I think they even called me pushy. And some, because <laughs> somebody read it to me one time, I'm like, well, yeah, I am pushy because I want to come to your school. I'm coming from an Ivy League school where I've had, you know, great academic success and you mm -hmm. guys won't let me in. Like, I'll take any class you require me to take. Just let me in, you know, and of course yeah. I get there and literally I get straight A's for the next two years all the way through and raise a bunch of money. But I look back and I'm like, they almost didn't let me in. I mean, I had to become that, you know, that pushy, my wife, you know, jokingly tells me because I'm a tourist, you know, I'm stubborn, which I am sometimes. So, uh, luckily my, uh, my stubbornness worked out for me. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, and, and sometimes you just gotta, you just gotta push, you just gotta keep, you know, it's. Pushy or persistence, one of the two, whatever you want to call it. Is, and there's is, a fine line there between persistent and annoying, right? So everybody yeah. just got to have some good EQ to figure out, well, how far can I push this versus, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of over the line here. And Exactly. Um, luckily, this one worked out for me, but yeah. So so what did you, um, so after you graduated from University of Florida, what, what did you want to accomplish? Did you know by then that what, what you wanted to do? Or? No, not, I mean, I, I had some ideas around, uh, so funny enough, I was I was actually very interested in in public service and and at the time um, comparative world religions only because I didn't know what else I wanted to do. I just looked mm -hmm. at religion as a as a really interesting way to to help people. Mm -hmm. um, and I got offered uh, through a family friend in Florida. I got offered to basically come on as a non paid intern for a lady who was running for Congress. And and I was out of the country when the two thousand president presidential election happened. So I wasn't even here, wasn't even in the US to see any of the stuff that was going on with these hanging chads and the Bush mm -hmm. v. Gore recount and all this stuff in Florida. Well, I got a job offer to or an internship basically to go work for a lady named Catherine Harris, who was at the center of all that, um, all the hanging chads, all the recount in Florida. She was the Secretary of State at, time, at the time and, um, and wanted to run for Congress in well, it was then at Florida's 13th Congressional District, which is um, covering Sarasota and Bradenton uh, and a little bit further south. And so I got this really unique opportunity to go on as a non-paying intern. And I loved it. Um, you know, they gave me assignments, uh, asked me to start, you know, looking into certain policy related things, gathering um, uh, elected officials across the district together to talk about, you know, what's important to them from a policy standpoint. And next thing you know, I went from being this intern to being you know, full-time policy coordinator for her. And then we won the election and, you know, kind of what, what really intrigued me about this too was I was, I loved the job and I loved winning the election. I loved the fact that they asked me to help open the office in Washington, D.C., which I went up and did. But um, along the way, Catherine was a Harvard uh, graduate. She went to the Kennedy School of Government. Her chief of staff uh, was a Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Long story into all this is my dad went to Harvard undergrad and did his MBA there. So this, this I, I mentioned earlier, this, this, you know, my friends jokingly called me an Ivy League dropout. Well, that was funny and we all laughed about it. And I was actually very comfortable with that. But I mm -hmm. still sat back and said, geez, is there a way I could ever redeem myself from this? Um, so luckily enough, uh, between Catherine and uh, a, guy, a great guy named Dan Berger, who was the chief of staff, and a few others wrote recommendation letters for me to go to to go to Harvard. So I went and did my master's in public policy, which is a two year master's degree program at the Kennedy School up there. So that's what you know. Public service, which I loved, mm -hmm. uh, helped get me into Harvard for a two year program, um, which you know changed my life, I guess, in in a really good way. Yeah, and you know, to to take a step back there too, 
you know, you you loved the the work you were doing in public service. You liked the 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 different uh, pieces, all you know, of, of of working in public service. Do you do you remember uh, Congressman Harris's platform at all? Is there were you did Total, you help uh, build that? Oh I, yeah, I, I mean, so I haven't thought about this. Uh, oh man, it's probably been fifteen years since the details. So I'll rattle off some things that were really <laughs> important. So this is yeah. you know this is South Florida. Um, and at the time, uh, you're, you're, you got to, this is 2002. Um, she came into office, uh, was elected. It was December, November of 2002 was when the election happened. So there were a handful of hot button, uh, public policy issues that were going on. A lot of retirees in the area. So obviously Medicare and social security. Um, at the time there was some talk about privatization of social security, though that wasn't something we were super focused on. Um, privatization, uh, health savings accounts. We're just coming online for in healthcare, and so that was of interest for a lot of um, uh, conservative candidates. So we were exploring those. Um, we were uh, veterans issues. We had one of the largest veterans populations in the southeast, and, and actually ended up getting a veteran cemetery brought to uh, to the Sarasota area uh, because of the Catherine's work. Um, a huge one was affordable housing. We mm-hmm. had a public housing complex uh, down in Sarasota called Janie Poe. That was, I mean, it was dilapidated and they'd applied for these really large grants. They were called Hope Six grants at the time. And they'd applied for like three or four years in a row and gotten turned down every time, despite the fact our close connections with the Secretary of HUD, Housing and Urban Development. And so it was like the community was so angry. I mean, one of these applications, the the executive director you pay uh, consultants a hundred grand to fill them out. And the executive director just forgot to sign it. It got turned down because he forgot to sign the damn thing. And so the community and the newspaper, and and don't get me like, I got comments I would make about the newspaper. I think they're, they got their own challenges, but everybody was so angry. And and there was this unique rallying call around affordable housing. And so you, then you project out a couple of years, 2004, 2005, 2006, housing prices are obviously going through the roof. Affordable housing is a key hot button issue for the workforce and employers down that way. And so, yeah, these were all, you you ask about platform related issues. These were all parts of the platform in addition to, you know, helping constituents get, you know, if they were having social security issues or uh, whatnot, like our office was there to, to help them. So it was just, yeah, I, I loved it. I think at, at the, my favorite part about all of it, policy stuff aside was, truly being able to help people when they needed it or being able to be a um you know a group that was authentically engaged and listening to to try to help folks was and it still is a big big piece of my life so um that's yeah, probably the thing that I look back on and say I was uh I remember the most fondly yeah it's in, it's interesting too that you know look you know when I look through your sort of uh, resume almost or your background uh, it's pretty clear that that's something really important to you is giving back with the with you know everything from um, you know politics and and all of the the um, you know unpaid positions and and you know just trying to help people. So try to um, you know I grew up in a family that we had some pretty significant um, opportunities and resources. Uh, you know family family history dated back to a big pharma company called Eli Lilly, and so when I was growing up, for me it was I, I was always whether my mom knew it or not, like I, I was learning about some of the service and the nonprofits that she was involved in and the support that she was giving and family had given to other 
nonprofit organizations and schools over a period of time. So that was just something that I just was always part of who we were. And, um, and I mean, I guess I theoretically could have gone a different path on that, but I, I actually got a, a massive amount of enjoyment from, from trying to be able to help people, which is why I loved working for Catherine so much or why I went to the Kennedy school and wrote my master's thesis on affordable housing. So, and then w- went off and, as you mentioned, I uh, referred to, I spent a couple of years working at Habitat for Humanity um, pro bono because they ran out of land and this is back in 05, 06. Mm-hmm. And, and they needed, um, you know, they needed a strategy to put additional uh, projects together. So we spent years doing that, which was, you know, tremendously valuable. I learned a ton. It was great. Uh, you know, and we impacted a lot of, a lot of lives down there. So yeah, it was a great time. Interesting. So, so that's a good segue, I think, into, um, you know, t- to talk about real estate and like Habitat for Humanity and, and this, um, uh, you know, affordable housing projects. And, and, and then you had a real estate development. So what if you want to touch on that and what happened with, oh, yeah. uh, with your first development? Oh, man. So, I mean, I, there was a couple of developments that were, that were great. Um, and then there was a huge one that was a complete disaster. Um, and so you look <laughs> back going, uh, you know, you saw all these issues happening. Um, like I had part, I was a minority partner in this big project. So we had a big, so we did a bunch of things, but the, the one that went completely sideways mm-hmm. and blew up was uh, we had a Waldorf Astoria hotel project in Sarasota. And, and this project was, you know, I came in as a limited partner. Um, I think originally I only had like 15%, 10 or 15% of the deal. Mm-hmm. And, and it was leading, this is 2006 to 2007. And so everybody knows what's coming is the financial crisis. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden, things start going really poorly for some of my other partners on other deals they have. They have to exit uh, the, the Waldorf project. And I find myself stepping in trying to salvage it. And you know, I'm, I don't know, 29 years old, stepping in to try to salvage. Now, we had financial commitments from people that said they were going to fund certain things, which they didn't. And then mm-hmm. the whole financial market blew up. And now I spent, so then I was sitting there going, oh my gosh, I got to spend two years in court unwinding all of this stuff. Oh. Um, and people looked at me because they knew I had money and they're like, oh, well, Zeb's just going to write us a check. And I was like, no, if I owe no, it not. to you, <laughs> if I owe it to you, I certainly will. And I did. Yeah. But when I didn't, I was like, no, I'm not. Like, this wasn't something that yeah. I created. I tried to salvage it. So we spent two years unwinding it in court. It was awful. Um, I wouldn't wish that upon anybody. Uh, but in hindsight, and I didn't realize this until a couple of years later, like, had I not gone through that litigation, had I not spent that time in court doing litigation strategy, I mean, I never would have been able to become a CEO of a company, right? Like mm-hmm. litigation, whether you like it or not, is a part of business and you need to be able to be prepared to navigate that should it come up. And, you know, for me, when I took over my first CEO role, I mean, I look back and I was like, if but for things like that, I never would have been able, I, they certainly wouldn't have offered me that position. So, I mean, sure, was it awfully painful at the time? No doubt. Um, I wouldn't mm-hmm. want to ever go through it again. In my, I've realized, and you can ask any of my friends, you know, I've got a bunch of great uh, CEO colleagues, and, and the answer at the end of the day is, who wins during litigation? The attorneys. And, and I can promise you, very rarely are both plaintiffs and or defendants happy with the outcome of what happens so yeah, yeah it's yeah. uh you know i 
my um, two sister-in-laws are, are both attorneys in, here in Florida, and, and I can tell you that, that that's always the case. Well, and, and you know, look, every, we all need attorneys, right? Lawyers yeah. are super important. The law is really important. Um, but I've always found that if you get to a point when it just becomes about lawyers fighting, um, it gets really expensive, and neither defendant nor plaintiff end up being very happy with whatever yeah. outcome comes from that. So in my experience... The, if, if there is an issue, the best thing you can do is sit down with a person across the table and and reach an agreement, mm-hmm. uh, assuming everyone's willing to be um, amicable and fair, right? Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah. um, so, so that that moves us forward. So, um, you know, then eventually you went to you went back to school, right? You did your MBA. I, I did. I did my MBA at Duke. It was a really unique program because I'd already done a two year. Uh, full-time MBA or full-time MPP at yeah. Harvard. And I was looking for something actually different, right? I, I mm-hmm. was fascinated with emerging markets. This is, um, you know, as the US, if you remember back in like uh, 08, 09, 2010, 2011, um, the US was struggling financially, trying to get uh, back on a footing. And, you know, the emerging markets uh, were a hot topic at the time. Uh, China, India, Mexico, um, you know, parts of the Middle East were, were all fascinating. So, you know, I went and did a, what, what they called a, like a, a global executive MBA. Technically it was called a cross continent MBA, um, mm-hmm. at Duke university where we went, um, started in Shanghai for two weeks. So we did, we were in China, London, Dubai, India. Um, oh gosh, where am I forgetting? Certainly we did, certainly did two weeks, uh, on the home campus in um, in Raleigh Durham. Oh, in Russia, we were in St. Petersburg, Russia, for two weeks, and it was like it was the same courses, same teachers, but just with an international focus. And man, it was so interesting. It's really cool, super yeah. cool. I, I mean, I learned a ton. I was I didn't have to move my family um, at the time, which was another uh, key component for me. And um, yeah, after that, went on and um, actually went in and uh, without using any family connections, started working at, at Lilly. Uh, which oh, was cool. I wanted to go learn the family. You know, it's not the family company, right? Big publicly traded company. I wanted to learn about the company that my family helped build, and that mm-hmm. was, and you know, probably one of my most favorite jobs I've ever had was working with them. Yeah. So, so what did you do at Lily? What what um, what was the role? They had a really interesting, and I don't know if it's still there. It's been a couple of years since I've asked anyone. They had a really interesting leadership development program, whereby if you come in as an MBA graduate. Um, you start off, actually, I came in and did a summer internship in their emerging markets unit, uh, mm-hmm. then came in and did sales for about nine months. I was a diabetes salesperson. Um, you know, for those who don't know, Lilly was the first uh, pharma company in the world to mass produce insulin. So they didn't, they didn't found, find insul- insulin, right? That was um, Banting and Best, uh, Canadians, right? Um, mm-hmm. Two Cam- Canadian scientists were the creators of insulin, but Lilly was the first in the world to be able to take their they're finding and mass produce it because nobody else had the technology to pull that off. Uh, so I, you know, a lot of things have happened since then. Um, but I was on the, uh, basically carrying the Lilly diabetes, uh, sales, uh, products, which were Humalog, Humalin, um, some, some oral products you could take for, for type two diabetes, et cetera. Uh, finished that nine month rotation, went in, uh, internally through two marketing roles. Uh, one was in their neuroscience, actually both in their uh, neuroscience area, one for um, a product that didn't make it through clinical trials was for depression and another that was for Alzheimer's, um, which was fascinating. 
and still is. And then mm-hmm. uh, I got placed as a brand manager for a, about a $500 million neuroscience product um, that was declining every year for the last 10 years. And uh, we had put a team together to, to turn that around and grow it. And, and we did. And it was, it was awesome. I mean, yeah, like so, so much fun. Great teammates, great culture. Didn't start off that way. Actually, the team I wandered into was a total mess. But yeah. uh, eventually, we were able to put some some really good folks in place. And I remember leaving uh, leaving that that group and uh, looking back on it as some of the the best, most fun times I've ever had working in business. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and it, you know, to go to kind of this from from public policy to real estate to to you know pharmaceuticals and all these different industries. Um, it, it kind of gives you this big picture mindset, right? Of like business in general, as, as opposed to like a specific business. So, all right. So this is really like, if, if you were, if somebody was like looking at my resume at that time, yeah. they'd be like, Hey, you look like you're hopping around a lot. Right. And my answer would have been, well, I am, but I'm doing things that I'm really passionate about. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's always going to be a constant theme through this like business is business is business it's just a matter of in this particular industry which levers do you have access to to pull to make the biggest difference so like mm-hmm. um like one of the things we did i was working th- this neuroscience product that i was the brand manager for uh was called stratera it was for um uh people with adhd um and because it'd been on the market for 10 years and really had a lot of challenges in the sales force you know, our sales team, even though they were supposed to be promoting it 30% of the time, didn't feel very confident with the product. And so we brought a group of, um, of advisors of our sales team together and sat down in a hotel in Indianapolis. And I remember sitting there and saying, hey, you know, what's driving this, right? So here's the data that we have, you know, well, let's, and then we came up and realized we need to build a confidence plan for everybody in the sales force out there. And so we actually developed a confidence building plan over 90 days to get everybody to a point when they're going to be able to go and, and not just say what needs to be said, but also, you know, get doctors comfortable again with writing the product. And, and that's what we did. And, you know, there was no script. Like I didn't, did I learn enough from real estate to figure that confidence plan out? Did I learn enough from, you know, Habitat for Humanity to figure that out? Like, did the MBA teach it to me? Did, did Harvard teach it to me? Like, it was just, at some point, like you just intuitively start understanding which pieces of business make sense. Mm-hmm. And there's no exact way of saying, you know, I was only able to do that because, you know, I built a house at Habitat. No, I, I, under, I started to learn, you know, the five different business models that Habitat had. So I started to figure out, hey, what drives people? How do you make decisions? How do you mm-hmm. impact and influence folks without using money, right? And there's stuff like that. And it just became, you know. You draw just, from even your psychology background initially, Oh, for right? sure. It's like, for, you know. Yeah, for sure. Things you know, everything like even now it's so funny that like, you know, I, I did one year computer science and that's enough to like talk to coders and, and, and be that intermediary glue between them and the finance people. And, and, and how, and, so how cool is that? Right. Mm-hmm. Like, so I know nothing. I've never taken computer science class. I would, yeah. I would die if you, if I was trying to be the intermediary, <laughs> but the folks, so one of my best friends, this is, this is to use this example you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my best friends at Lilly had a PhD in biology um, microbiology, but also had an MBA from Duke and what yeah. was in, and so he, he was one of the few people that could take the science and the marketing and yeah. talk each other's language, right? Like yeah. you could take computer science and 
you know, investment strategy and talk each other's language. Like that's super rare. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and, it's, it's interesting. It's, and, and all it takes is like a year. It's not, it, you know, I don't have a computer science degree even. It's just, it's just literally a year or two in, in multimedia design I took after that. So it's like these, these things that kind of these pieces that you, and it's funny, even with the, you're talking about, um, uh, you know, the, the, um, uh, diabetes medication. I actually did a summer internship at a, um, at a pharmaceutical manufacturing facility where I was in processing, processing metformin, uh, for the summer. So I was literally really? in hazmat suits, like, like, yeah, like, um, that's what yeah. happened to be where my mom worked as a chemist and, you know, they were hiring summer students. So I, you know, so for everybody, these... for everybody who's listening, who doesn't know metformin is yeah. like basically the first thing that's prescribed to people if they've got, uh, diabetes or type two diabetes, mm-hmm. because it, 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 it essentially helps you, um, it reduces your blood sugar levels. Uh, so it's like the, the first line, if you, if anybody walks in, that's normally the first thing a doctor prescribes. So you were actually making that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was an interesting summer. You know, I started in, in the packaging line and then I moved to maintenance for a little bit and then they put, put us in granulation and in processing. And it was, it was so funny because like, you know, we made, you know, the majority of what we made was metformin, but we also made like other things. And I remember we, we made, I think Tylenol threes or something, something with codeine. And I remember the blue powder and you have like guys in looking through the window, watching you pour the blue powder and your hands like shaking. You're like, ah, if I drop this, this is like $70,000. Like, you know, just doing all in as a summer student, it was, it was crazy. It was a great experience. So. Oh, that's cool. I, so yeah. in full transparency, Greg, I became a manufacturing junkie. Yeah. Um, and the, my, my, my next gig after we were successful on the Stratera brand, they asked me to come on as a Lean Six Sigma black belt, which is basically like, you know, operations yep. improvement across anything, marketing, manufacturing. Like we had, we were, we became internal consultants at Lilly to go tackle any problem that, you know, the president of Lilly USA or anyone else wanted us to go after. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I, and I later then became a, a, a manufacturing. My first job was Swiss Chrono was large flooring and wood products manufacturing. I love that stuff, right? Like figuring yeah. out how you can make things better. And not because I had any answers, but because normally I found like if you bring a team of people together, they probably know what the problems are. And they also have a bunch of great ideas on how you can solve them. You know, mm-hmm. if you say, hey, it, like your hand is shaking, right? Because you're like, yeah. right, how much percentage of all that blue stuff that you're using yeah. uh, goes to waste in a, in a in a week or a year and saying, okay, well, what process can we put in place to reduce that waste number by half? Like those projects were really damn cool in my opinion. Yeah. So yeah. I, don't know, I fell in love with that sort that's of my, stuff. And- that's my dad's background actually. He's um, a Lean Six Sigma engineering background, then an MBA and, and no, uh, manufacturing. No kidding. What, what kind of work does he do now? He, he's, um, he works for a company called Ross Video. Ross Video um, manufa- designs and manufactures broadcast equipment. Oh, um, so they, they do a lot of the NFL s- stadium stuff. They do a lot of the different sports teams. My sister actually works on the sports team, uh, there. And, and so he's in charge of, um, all manufacturing and services oh, at, that's at awesome. Ross video. And so big Canadian multinationals, you know, big success story over the past 20 years. They've done very well. So, you know, one of the yeah. great things about lean six Sigma and, and what I call continuous improvement methodology you don't mm-hmm. have to use, it doesn't have to be lean, doesn't have to be Six Sigma. I mean, it's about, hey, you know, what can we be doing better? Yeah. And, and that sort of mentality that like, 
you know, to steal a saying from um, uh, Rory McIlroy, like he had a couple big, you know, for those who don't know, he's a, he's a professional golfer around the world. He, he had a slogan or a saying with Adidas that said, uh, better never quits. Mm-hmm. And, and that really resonated with me. Like in anything in business, I can assure you there is something you can be doing better than you are. Now, you may not have the capacity to go solve that yet. But if you did, there's always a place where you can be doing better in something. So, um, you know, if you want to, I've always had the perspective perspective that, you know, if, if better never quits, like don't ever stop, don't, don't rest on your loyals, uh, never stop trying to be better. There's always more you can do, better output, better, you know, better relationships, you know, better, better sales, efficiency, better, better, better sales know, targets, all, all that stuff. That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I agree. So, so tell me more about uh, Swiss Chrono. Um, you know, the flooring company, you, how did you get linked up with them and, and was it hard leaving, um, Eli Lilly? Yes, it was super hard leaving Eli Lilly. Um, now I got a different last name, so very few people Mm -hmm. working there knew, uh, of the family connection, Yeah, but I mean, there was not a day that went by if I didn't walk through, uh, what we call Lilly corporate center, kind of like the, the halls of, of Lilly, um, and their entrance. Like I got goosebumps every time I walked through it. And I, and I, you know, I was there every day and I still got goosebumps almost every day walking through there. Let me ask you this actually, before you keep going. Yeah. Um, having that background that some people would, would without knowing like people that would know about the background would think that there's some sort of nepotistic person, you know, something there. Do you think that drives you harder where you work harder than, than if you didn't have that background? For sure. It did for me. Yeah. Um, it, it, not it, saying it will for everyone, but yeah, I mean, so like, you know, you, you hear these stories of people like, you know, if it's sons or daughters of a founder or something like that, right. Family business, they go in and, and, you know, they can kind of just ride on their coattails. Like I, mm-hmm. I kind of took the exact opposite approach. I, I wanted people and I've always, in my entire life, I've been this way though. I wanted people mm-hmm. to like me for who I was and what I was able to accomplish on my own. And um, be it in school and soccer and, you know, any of the hobbies and act- extracurricular activities I was into, like that stuff was super important to me. So when I got to Lily, I also, the last thing you could, I mean, think of how shitty this would be if you end up, you know, walking into the first meeting with somebody and they're like, oh, I'm so-and-so, you know, my yeah. family did this. And you're like, yeah, yeah. you're coming across as an idiot. Like, I don't want to work with you. I didn't, yeah. you know, the people who brag about that stuff, like, no, let your results speak for themselves. So you know, exactly. I, when I got there, I, maybe three people, um, all of whom were like, you know, CEOs or presidents in the company. Like, I didn't talk about it with anyone um, because I wanted my react, I wanted my actions to speak for themselves. So, but it also posed some unique challenges. Like, I didn't expect that when when folks did find out, because um, mm-hmm. it, it some people ended up learning about it. When they did find out, there was questions. Like, we had built this amazing team on Stratera. And then I got this Lean Six Sigma position, which I was the youngest Lean Six Sigma black belt, maybe at the time in the company, if not ever appointed to that job. And people were like, well, Zeb's getting special treatment because of his family connection. And I was like, well, I actually felt the opposite. Yeah. I I went to Lilly because, so this is funny, I did this global MBA and I went there with a very specific goal that I wanted to go run a a emerging market company, like, you know, could be a 15, $20 Mm -hmm. million dollar business, but I really, I want to go overseas and I wanted to be in charge and own the PL for, for a company and for, for a subsidiary Lily. Yep. And 
that being able to get that job was it kept getting harder and harder and harder for me to do it partly because Lily was changing also they had to do some employee reductions but I was sitting back you know it's like well if it was so damn easy and I was getting you know such special treatment how come you know the one thing I really wanted to do I was never offered to do yeah and so I, I looked back and was like yeah it you know people were like it came with a double-edged sword Zeb's getting special yep. treatment, but I really wasn't. So I worked yep. harder, proved myself. And then, so this is how the Swiss Chrono job came up. I was serving on a nonprofit board um, for a group doing economic development in Africa. And on the board of directors was uh, a guy who was running, it's like the, I think they're the third or fourth largest search firm in, in uh, the world right now mm -hmm. uh, called N2 Growth. A great guy named Mike Myatt. And Mike, uh, is like, hey, Zeb, and we've gotten to know each other over a couple of years on this nonprofit board. And I got to know his son who was running it. And Mike was like, Zeb, can I put your name in the in the running for this uh, this CEO job I have? And I was like, Mike, I mean, you can. I'm honored for you even mm -hmm. think about me, but I'm not going to leave Lily. I'm not going to leave my family company. Like, I'm going to be here forever. I'm never going to go. And he's like, well, you know, if you want to move up, the fastest way for you to move up is probably to ping pong off and come back in at a higher level. He's like, mm -hmm. I'm just telling you what I see in the business world all the time. You can take it differently, but he's like, let me just put your name in the ring. It's like, okay, Mike, you know, I'm never going to leave, but you know, it'll be a good experience. I'd love to see what they have. You know, to be able to be CEO of a $250 million a year company is obviously mm -hmm. intriguing, but I was never going to go. And he's like, there's 250 people that are applying for this job or 300 people that applied you know, chance of me getting it's like zero. Well, I go through this interview process and, you know, it took six or eight weeks and um, multiple interviews. And uh, I interviewed the board of directors and the owner, uh, flew to Switzerland uh, to interview them yet again. And lo and behold, at the end of the whole process, uh, they offer a guy with no flooring and wood products experience uh, the job because they wanted an outside perspective from a, you know, I guess a, an engaging uh, Ivy League trained uh, executive. So I got offered the job and um, had to walk in and tell uh, a guy named Alex Azar, who just retired as the Secretary of Health and Human Services under Trump, who, who literally wrote Project Warp Speed, which we can talk about later. I was spent some time <laughs> with Alex last week. But I had to go in and tell Alex, the president of Lilly USA, that I was leaving to take a CEO job. And Alex was a friend and a mentor. And, and that was that was impossibly hard to do because of the family connection, at least the weight I I, yeah. I placed on myself. But um, but it, it catapulted my career 15 years the day I took that job. I mean, I owned my own business. It was massive. Uh, it had all the manufacturing, which was an area that I, I wanted to get deep into, all sales and marketing. Um, Swiss Corona had its own challenges. We were building a new plant uh, that came with some unique challenges also, plus a group of Europeans some of whom were fantastic to work with and others were a cultural nightmare trying to come into the United States. Um, so we got to live through a whole bunch of that stuff. That's definitely, definitely sounds like a lot of challenges. Good challenges. Sometimes, um, you know, I don't, I, I, there is, let me give you a stereotype that I found to be true. Um, mm -hmm. Some of the, some of the Germans and some of the uh, Austrian and Swiss that I worked with, um, they got really angry, yeah. really angry. And uh, most Americans, I mean, look, they'll stand up for themselves. But at some point, like if every day you come in and you're yelling at people, like you will lose all of your credibility and mm -hmm. all of your ability to influence folks. 
And that I watched that happen with some of the European colleagues coming in and doing that. It was, yeah, they were just like, I will tell you the way it will be yeah. and it will be. And we're like, no, just because you think you can, you can't tell yeah. a customer what to do in, in the United States. It doesn't, doesn't work like that here uh, a lot of the time. So yeah, it's big cultural, big cultural difference. I mean, Canada is kind of in between the two. So I, I definitely understand that. Well, it can be, you just got to um, have your eyes wide open and have some good EQ about who you're working with. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and how to approach them and the, the cultural norms. I mean, I think being open to that as opposed to saying my way is the right way in my experience gets a lot more results than, than walking in and, and you know, dictating how things are supposed to go. Yeah. But yeah. So from there you, um, you moved on to Vestergaard, right? Is that, yeah. was that a we subsidiary were, of Swiss or is no, he... it, 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 it was Swiss. Uh, it's the largest manufacturer of mosquito nets in the world to prevent malaria. Oh, wow. Um, super interesting company. Uh, owned and run by uh, one man, a guy named Mikkel Vestergaard, might be one of the most interesting guys in the world. Um, Mikkel lived in New York City. Uh, he was Danish. His company moved to uh, Lausanne, Switzerland, outside Geneva a number of years ago. And and he was basically taking a... He, he wanted to completely step back from the business. Um, we also had a product called LifeStraw, which was a water purification group. And we did a lot of food security work uh, over there. And you know, I, I came in... Uh, took over the global operations for for Mickle so he could stay in New York more most of the time. Uh, loved the time that I was there. Loved the experience. Loved the team. Um, you know, would run through a brick wall with a lot of those guys. And, but at the end of the day, what happened was I was traveling like ninety percent of the time, and not small stuff. Like we had ten thousand employees and subcontractors mm-hmm. in in Vietnam where we did all of our manufacturing, all cut and sew operations, all uh, uh, mosquito net impregnation, and I was there six times a year. And, uh, but our whole sales territory was Africa, like the entire continent of Africa, including <laughs> R&D that we ran out of both um, New York, DC, and Ghana. But I, then I had, we had sales and logistics and, and finance out of India and an owner that lived wow. in New York City. And I was on a plane. I did 350,000 miles on Delta and Delta affiliates in the 18 months, wow. over an 18 month period when I was at Vestergaard. It was it was crazy and unsustainable. And I moved my family there because granted they paid really well. Um, mm-hmm. and I wanted the opportunity to be back in healthcare, but I didn't realize I was going to be gone all the time. And then something really, really important happened. Um, there was some legislation that got passed back in the U S uh, called opportunities on legislation that allowed anyone with a capital gain to have mm-hmm. probably the most beneficial tax treatment that, that I certainly will ever see in my lifetime for capital gains. And I realized really quickly with not just for our family um, and a lot of the stock that we held at Lilly that had, you know, basically zero basis um, since, since founding, but also I had a lot of friends in this group called YPO who were either going to have exits or were having exits and we're going to have capital gains issues. And so we quickly realized that it was time for me to come back to the U.S., uh, create our own private equity group, focus on a lot of opportunity zone investing and um, and that's what I did. So I was over in, uh, running that with, in Europe for about two years uh, when the OZ stuff passed and we came back to, to do that. And I stopped getting on airplanes all the time, which was very yeah. favorable for my wife and two daughters. Absolutely. You know, some travel is always nice, but uh, too oh, much this, is like, ugh. At this level, so I would get the diamond medallion um, uh, yeah. luggage tag in the mail. And a lot of people were like, oh, that's really cool. I'm like, actually, this is like 
the exact opposite of it. it's like a, it's like a scarlet letter for me. It's a badge of dishonor <laughs> to be rolling around with this thing. That just means I'm gone all the time. So yeah, yeah. things I was thinking about. But, um, so something we haven't talked about, and I'm not sure if you want to get there. However, the single most powerful, impactful organization I've ever been part of is a group called YPO, uh, stands for Young yeah. Presidents Organization. Um, if but for these guys, which is I'd say where I spend most of my time and my public service volunteering, uh, I'm the state chair for South Carolina, but these guys are, they've, the organization has changed my life in a way that every time I'm thinking through a major life decision, like leaving Switzerland to come back to the U S or even mm-hmm. going to Switzerland in the first place. Um, I ran it past my YPO, we call it a forum, but it's like your board of directors and they help you think through all the really good things going on in your life and all the really bad things going on in your life. Like they're there to talk about whatever it is that's, that's important to you. And, um, and man, I mean, I would have made so many more mistakes in business and in my personal life, probably if I didn't have, um, you know, this group around me to kind of share their experiences and learn from people who are, you know, have maybe have been there before and done that. So I just put it for, for anybody listening, if you have the opportunity Absolutely. to join, uh, to join a group like YPO, like it, it'll, it's changed my life. It's the single, I would put it as it's been more influential for me than being a Harvard graduate, you know, with a Harvard network or a Duke graduate um, or anything else. It's the single best leadership organization I've ever been part of. So on that note, how do you, how do you become part of YPO? How do you, how do you get involved with them? Yeah. So you have to be, um, here are the criteria. You have to be, to join, you have to be under 45 years old. Mm -hmm. Uh, You have to be a president or CEO or chairman of the board for an organization. And they've got some other different criteria. So uh, for a manufacturing company, you have to have around, I want to say like 13 or $14 million in revenue, and then mm-hmm. a certain number of employees that report up to you. And so I got in when I was at Swiss Chrono, we had a, oh, what, 200 plus employees and, uh, you know, $200 million in revenue. So mm-hmm. we were, I mean, I, I far surpassed the, uh, the, the yeah. criteria to, to, to be admitted. And then, you know, if you go through all that, and they interview you and you're relatively nice and smart, you don't come across as a jerk, um, odds are you'll you'll get access. So you just apply and they let you in, but you got to meet those criteria. Interesting. Sounds 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 like a really interesting group. And you know, you can learn I, I learned so much from talking to guys like you and in your background. Imagine I can only imagine a whole group of guys like you and talking to them and and, and well, about your background. I mean, hell, Greg. So I mean, here's a great story. If but for YPO. I mean, I would have never started making investments in the digital assets cryptocurrency space. Mm-hmm. So one of my uh, YPO forum mates in 2017 decided he was going to start his own, uh, I think at the time it was an Ethereum, Ethereum and Bitcoin mining operation. And, and he did. And I was a co-investor with him in that. And then three months later, his company gets bought by and rolled up by a bunch of other YPO guys. Mm-hmm. And now it's run by the chief operating officer, former chief operating officer of Microsoft, a guy named Kevin Turner. Uh, this company's called Core Scientific, and and Core is probably going to go public in the next, I don't know, six or twelve months, and for a gazillion dollars or some crazy mm-hmm. number. And you know, and we launched our own um, Bitcoin mining fund because of what we cool. learned along the way. But and I wouldn't if if but for YPO. Like I wouldn't know that stuff. I wouldn't yeah. know anything about it. So it's been, yeah, it's just been 
it's changed my life. The unique personalities, the people and their experiences. I mean, anytime you can have a diverse team around you, um, I've, I've always found diversity makes a team so much more, so much better and so much more nimble and thinking about all the, the pros and cons and any decision that needs to be made. Absolutely. So, so um, now that we've uh, touched all of that, finally, we'll, we'll get to what you're doing today. Um, so maybe give us a overview. I, I know you mentioned opportunity zones and a lot of the viewers have heard it on other podcasts too, as well. Um, so what does gem funds actually do? What are you investing in? What's your, uh, what, what are you working on now? Yeah. So uh, gem funds is, is an alternative asset uh, private equity group. And we've got multiple funds underneath us. We, we started uh, and became experts in opportunity zones, uh, but we've also become experts in high-tech agriculture. So think greenhouses for tomatoes, leafy greens, cannabis. Uh, those mm. are all areas we've invested very heavily. Um, solar and renewable energy, as an example. I mean, I've, I've built a solar facility for one of our sites already. We're looking at arguably what could be one of the largest um, solar sites in the state of South Carolina. Um, so that's in development right now. And then uh, blockchain and cryptocurrencies is, I, I'd say, our you know, third or fourth, depending on how you categorize it, our, you know, our, our, our other major pillar within uh, our group. And so each one of those are, are areas that we've, uh, one of our investors or one of our partners has significant uh, experience in. Um, all of our investors are obviously very bullish on those, uh, on those categories. And so here we are uh, right now, I'd say, you know, 50% of my day involves, uh, you know, we, we launched a, a, we call it gem mining. It's a, a Bitcoin mining fund. Actually, it's the, I think it's the only opportunity zone Bitcoin mining fund, probably in the United States. And, um, you know, thought we were just going to raise a couple million dollars through friends and family. And, mm -hmm. you know, here we are $33 million later oversubscribed. And, you know, our, our, I think I've signed a deal, maybe even uh, it'll get signed today for, a group to take us public by the, uh, you know, in the next six to nine months. So we're, um, it's been awesome, man. It's been a great ride. Uh, obviously sounds really interesting, super interesting space I and mean, digital assets right now and blockchain in general, or, you know, Tesla put a one and a, we, we were doing this before Tesla put one and a half billion dollars on their balance yep. sheet of Bitcoin. Um, but that certainly didn't hurt. Uh, it, it, yeah. it, it made, it made access to our mining units a little more complicated, but, um, from a Bitcoin valuation standpoint, I mean, trading a damn close to $60,000 of Bitcoin right now. It's yeah, wild. Yeah, it's definitely, it sounds like you're in, you're in these um, areas that are, you know, not everyone has adopted yet. You're almost in that forefront of the, uh, technologically speaking, right? And like between, um, you know, cannabis and, and, and uh, crypto, and, but also in, into, you know, solar and other technological innovations. Yeah. And even like, we'll, we will have, I think the largest greenhouse operation for tomatoes and leafy greens mm -hmm. in the Southeastern United States. Uh, actually, I, I just submitted our financing package uh, through USDA for that, or we will at least, I think this week, um, you know, we're, we're, we look at technology and, and then have a team of people around us that help us are either experts in that or help us figure out how to become experts in that space. Um, so I've got five partners. They actually all happen to be YPO CEOs. Uh, <laughs> one of the guys is a, is a tech entrepreneur um, who helped me get into the, the, the crypto mining space. And he runs, uh, he sold his company to core still operates there. Uh, one guy is a real estate developer. One's in construction. 
Um, another guy sold his financial services company a couple of years ago for a boatload of money. And, you know, everybody brings a whole bunch of different perspective and a whole bunch of expertise to the table that, you know, when we have to make a decision, you know, we're thinking all the way around that decision to make sure, Hey, what can we trip ourselves up on? Or are we really making the right decision here? Or should we be doing something else? Um, I like to say they've saved my bacon many, many times because my perspective just knows this. They can help me think through all the other parts. So, yeah, great. And so, um, are are you actively bringing in investors? Are you looking? To, is, is it just the crypto mining side that you that you're raising for? Or are you raising for other verticals? Um, well, I would maybe by the end of today, we're not going to be taking any more investors in our in our crypto space, um, and we're not taking any investors on on any of our other platforms now. Mm-hmm. The only thing that would have been open would have been our Bitcoin mining fund, and I think. That may end up getting closed uh, today. So I would say uh, we're in the unique position that the answer is probably no. Um, you know, we've raised yep. the money we need to, and it's been uh, now it's all about deployment. And and luckily, we've been in spaces that are super strong and hopefully continue to be. But uh, you know, at some point, some of that's also out of our control. But uh, we we try to control the most variables that we can. Deployment and, and uh, execution is kind of the CEO's job, right? So it's That's interesting. Right. You have five of them to, that we, to and we got it. five of them to help you know <laughs> hammer this home. And you know, yeah. I, I like to joke and say, if I got hit by the beer truck tomorrow, um, you know, walking the dogs or something, then uh, any one of those other four could step in and, and run what we're running. So we're uh, I'm very blessed to have them as partners, no doubt. Great, interesting. So. So now for the the fun part, a little a little bit um, introspective sort of questions here. Um, so what what has been the single biggest challenge across your career? Would you say? Man, um, well, certainly unwinding that Persenium project, that um, the the mm-hmm. Waldorf Astoria project, and during the financial crisis in 08, 09, 2010, uh, ah, that was horrible, right? Just what it was miserable. Um, and then being on the front page of all the newspapers because it was such a big project that was unwinding mm-hmm. that that stuff stunk. Um, couldn't have become CEO and run companies without being through that litigation, but it didn't make it fun. So I'd probably uh, right now, but no doubt that is always, at least for, for now, that's the, the most painful experience I've had to go through. Um, yeah. Yeah. That would sum it up. That sounds, sounds painful. So, so what advice would you give to someone that's trying to find their niche? They're trying to find something that they're passionate about. Oh man, totally. So, uh, depends on what stage you are in life. I would say for people who are in college, my advice to anybody there is go intern as many places as you possibly can, because it's, it's almost more important for you to work somewhere and find out you don't like it Mm -hmm. than to work somewhere and find out you do. Because if you have this, you know, and I had a friend who, who um, went off and worked at, uh, she was an MBA student and went off and worked at Apple, right? With these, everybody's like, oh my gosh, you're working at Apple. It's so glowing. And, and she came back, she's like, culturally, she's like, it didn't fit for me. So imagine mm-hmm. if she would have, you know, signed a, a, a signing letter and bonus and contractual agreement for multiple years to work at Apple. And then she gets there and two months later, she's like, wow, I don't like this place. You know, if she would have interned there like she did. Um, that's a yeah. really good thing. So I, my advice to people that are in college or at least in a place like that is, you know, go try as many different things and figure out it's more, it's as important to figure out what you don't like as it is to figure out what you do like. Um, and then for, you know, folks that are at, I guess, at any stage in their career is 
do what you love. I mean, life's too short. If you're not passionate about something, you don't like what you do, you don't like who you work with, don't do it anymore. Um, you know, it's easier said than done. Like, yes, you probably need a paycheck, but I've always found, especially across my friends and, and colleagues is if you're not passionate, go find something you are passionate about and the money usually follows. Yeah, I think that's good advice. So, so what do you see? Uh, last question. What, what do you see in the future for gem funds and, and for your career? What do you, what's now that you're, uh, you're at this point? Yeah. I mean, so this is the busiest I've ever been in my life. Um, I think we're going to have three, maybe even four companies that we sell or go public this year, which is just insane. Um, you know, the, trying to take three companies in, in a public offering in one year is just like someone. <laughs> <I'm a, laughs> I, I, I can only imagine if that. I can do one, let alone three. I mean, they're all yeah. going to be, it, it could be really strong, but I, and then I'm going to go on vacation for a really, really long time. Um, because I, I've been waking up, I mean, with crypto, yeah. it was so here's something that's interesting about the Bitcoin space, you know, this is an industry that doesn't sleep, right? Yeah. It is on 24 seven, 365. Uh, I lost a deal a, a month and a half ago. We were looking at a deal. It's really crazy, Greg. So, so what happened was we had agreed to a contract um, on a Friday afternoon. I signed it on Saturday morning and then realized Monday was a banking holiday. And so I was like, Hey, Monday's a banking holiday. I can't wire you the funds because the banks are actually closed. And they said, <laughs> and our deal was only good through through Monday afternoon. And they said, sorry, you know, deals canceled. And they took crypto over the weekend for payment from somebody else. <laughs> so, I mean, I find myself waking oh, up at like 3 a.m. Uh, at least a couple of times a week, partly because we've got so much work to do, but also because, you know, this marketplace just moves quickly. And, you know, when we have an opportunity to buy certain machining uh, mining units, which is what we're focused mm -hmm. on right now for this Bitcoin mining fund, we, we got to go. And if we don't, somebody else will and they'll wire the money. They'll, they'll send crypto to, to make payments. So it just, um, you know, I, I see us continuing to grow. Uh, we've got some really important projects we need to execute on. This high-tech ag project here in the Southeast is massively important for food security. Uh, we got three companies we'll try to take public this year in our portfolio, and um, and then I'm going to go on a long vacation. Good. Well, enjoy uh, enjoy the vacation. I hope I'm you, not there uh, yet. I got a lot of work to uh, do still. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah. After, after the sales, uh, you got maybe six months, another six to eighteen months, probably before yeah, it's going to be a run at that point. Sprint. It's going to be a sprint. So, yeah. hey, Greg, thanks for having me on. It's been awesome. Um, Thank you. Yeah, it, by all means, uh, appreciate <clears throat> the time. Great questions. If I can do anything to help promote this, let me know. Absolutely. And that's all for today's episode. Please like, follow, subscribe, and share with friends, family, and colleagues to further support FunViews podcast. Until next time, 